Give me a go, no go for launch. Just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. I was gonna say something that was not true. I, I don't know why we do these. This is all totally not getting cut out. Yes! We are go for launch. And welcome to the Almost Sideways podcast. This is definitely not Terry Plucknet talking. This is Zach Saltz, your host, your new host, talking for this week. And on the other line is the incredible, amazing Todd Plucknet. Yeah, I'm here. Just watched Michigan win. That actually helps my bracket. Yeah, so, you know, you said that if Duke wins the title, you win a bunch of money, right? Oh, yeah. yeah How does uh, that make you feel, you sell out? Uh, it's awesome because yesterday I was rooting against Duke, and if I if Duke won, then my bracket keeps on. But if Duke lost, then awesome, Duke lost. So it's a win-win. That's what that's what you got to put your enemy as your champion, and then you can never lose. Yeah, but doesn't it feel a little cheap to win in a year where Loyola Chicago makes the Final Four, and you're just basically the consequence of everyone's back bracket being busted? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Well, with that being said, we want to thank everyone for listening. Uh, I'm going to say whatever Terry says. You were all on Twitter or on Facebook, or as Coach Belichick would say, face me, my, my face, right? Um, <laughs> you can find the Red and Brown podcast, the, Be- the Ben and Adam podcast. They're doing some awesome work on, uh, on their podcast. Apparently, Adam did a great video about the top baseball movies ever made. I haven't seen it, but I hear, hear it's great holiday fun. Two th- solid thumbs up. So we're taking over this podcast today because Terry's too lame to come on. He's like on some field trip. And uh, we're going to do our own thing. You know, we're going to like freestyle it up. There's going to be some vulgarity. There's going to be some very, very, uh, how should we say, candid commentary throughout. I don't know, Todd, what are your expectations? Pain. I like it. I like it. So, um, to start out, we're going to do uh, basically a run-through of some recent films that have hit theaters. So, you know, often on this podcast, it will be me, Todd, and Terry talking about one movie that's been in release, and we are really fortunate, really lucky if all three of us had the opportunity to see it. Well, with one man short, that means one less person has to get the theater, And so Todd and I have actually seen three films that we are going to review on this podcast. And uh, Todd, would you like to start with our first film? Yeah, uh, so uh, we both were able to see uh, the new Alex Garland movie, Annihilation. Let me see him. He's extremely ill. You have to tell me where he was, what he was doing. It was his decision to go in. It's something they termed the shimmer. We've sent in drones and teams of people, but nothing comes back. Which is a sci-fi movie about uh, a group of willing and unwilling women who bark on a mission into an environmental zone where nothing is really as it seems and the rules of nature don't really apply. And uh, to me, it's like a sci-fi reimagining of Apocalypse Now, but with a female cast, which sounds interesting, but it really kind of isn't. it's got the pretty much the exact same ideas and implications as Garland's last movie, uh, Ex Machina, and uh, it's sort of shot with like the the shock horror elements of the thing, with like the slow burning pace of Arrival, and 
all those movies I just mentioned, I have one thing in common. They're a lot better than this movie. Uh, the end of ending is, like, painfully obvious. You see it coming a mile away. It's, like, uh, the same ending as, I don't know, spoiler alert, Old Boy, The Shape of Water, or even Phantom Thread. Uh, the CGI is the worst CGI since, like, The Lovely Bones. Uh, the actors are pretty much disinterested throughout, uh, other than Gina Rodriguez and Oscar Isaac. And, uh, I don't know, we've seen this all before, and, uh, it's a one-star movie, for sure. Whoa! Daddy! In the words of Steve Buscemi and Fargo, one star! <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's, it's, it's awful. I mean, I mean, it has, like, a, a certain, like, hypnotic pace to it throughout a little bit of it but i mean uh, i mean it pretty much crashes and burns when you actually see where it's all going i mean i don't think you've ever given a jennifer jason lee movie that low of a rating probably not an ali portman movie either i mean weren't what what happened that's exactly what i want to know <laughs> okay well, maybe it's because it's not i mean it's not an original story i mean alex garland has i mean ex machina was great i i love that movie but this i don't know nothing worked that everything was so derivative i have a completely different take on it i i think the movie is i, I think we might have seen two separate movies because i really like this movie um and i've thought about it quite a bit since i've seen it i like the premise uh i like the idea that we're we're sort of meant to emotionally associate with the Natalie Portman character who's obviously gone through some kind of tragic loss uh, with her husband uh, played by Oscar Isaac and we're never quite sure what the intentions are particularly with the Jennifer Jason Lee character Dr. Ventress and but you know we're on for the ride and it does feel a little like predator that or the thing like a female version of it um and i was on board i mean i really got into this movie especially in the first hour and a half um i really wanted to see what happened next i liked the premise a lot uh there were some really exciting moments in the film and uh not a whole lot of jump scares but what what was made up for with that was uh more intellectual interest in the film now i will say I didn't love the last 20 minutes of it. I, I think it did kind of go off course a little bit. I wouldn't I don't I have no clue how you could possibly associate the end of this movie with Old Boy. I'd be very curious to see why why you said that. Uh the ending is the exact same. It's like it the the character just uh recognizes that he can't have uh his life the same way, which is the same thing that now the performance character does and so they just like go with it and go with the the oh, i see what you're saying it's the exact same thing it's the exact same thing as like i'm saying phantom thread and the shape of water it's it's the exact same ending well okay okay i i, I, w I will give you that i, I mean I, the, my bigger problem with the ending is that it was really just indulgent like we kind of got the message after the first 10 minutes of this the alien creature moving around and duplicating every one of Natalie Portman's movements. Oh, by the way, this is just like one big spoiler warning. But, um, I mean, it was, a, it was an exercise in like special effects over the top. You know, it's cool, whatever. But uh, I, I just wish it had moved on. Um, well, even if you assume that, uh, even if you assume that she uh, had actually turned into this creature, then... I mean, that's the exact same ending as Ex Machina then, because it, then it's just like these these things are gonna eventually take over the take over the Earth, and it's like they're they're eventually unleashed because nobody suspects it, and 
Like it's the exact same thing. It, it everything is derivative of something else in this movie. Yeah, but don't you think that's sort of like all science fiction movies to a certain extent? I mean, you can no also say the same thing about movie. What? You could say the same thing about Ga- Gattaca. It's like... I mean, sort of, but I mean... I don't okay, know. I, I, another point I want to add is uh, I love this movie's use of the song Helplessly Hoping by uh, Crosby, Stills, and Nash. What do you think about that, Todd? It was one of the best uses of music in any movie I've seen in a long time. I actually don't know the song by name, so... Well, it's the song that... that is playing at the beginning when she's like painting their bedroom and trying to get over get over the loss of her husband. No, see, this is uh. why this is this is why it's so fun to have these podcasts because it's like we really do see two two separate films. Like literally after that movie, I was like humming the song and I downloaded it on my iTunes and was like, that's really cool. I mean, that alone almost lifted the movie to a higher place. I guess. <laughs> is, is that like the beginning of uh, Get Out when you you hear a. Uh... Donald Glover's uh, song, like, like th- that totally made the beginning of that movie for me. Yeah, see, I don't remember that song at all. Like Raw Bone, no, <laughs> nothing. No, not <laughs> <Okay>. a clue. <laughs> well, I'm giving the film three stars because uh, I do think it gets a little indulgent at the end, and you're probably right. It is it, ultimately it's a reductive ending that is uh, pretty derivative, and I don't know. I, I think it builds up an uh, ample amount of suspense, and you kind of wish that Garland had been able to back it up in the way that he did with Ex Machina, but, but uh, he didn't. The movie's not one star, though. I mean, it has good special effects, it has good characters. That's just, that's just being cruel. No, I mean, it's terrible. I mean, I, I actually really despised it, after, especially right after I watched it, because of all the connections I made and how horribly it actually came. And, and it, honestly, it didn't look good. Like, the CGI was so bad. Like, th- there, was, there were shots when I was just like, wow, that looks really, really terrible. And it was the, the first time I actually thought that, other than, like, that one scene I talked about the last podcast with uh, in Black Panther, it was, like, since The Lovely Bones, I've never actually looked at a movie and be like, wow, that budget was not used properly. That looks horrible. Well, I think we're just going to have to agree to disagree. I mean, I'm not at the point where I'm ready to defend the film that greatly, uh, so maybe that says something. Um, I don't think it's nearly as good as Ex Machina, and I do think it's a, sort of a letdown in the last 30 minutes, but it's not one star. I mean, it was it was too, like, middle-brow even to piss me off that much. Well, I mean, maybe it, maybe it was Adam's four-star review that, that uh, put the too much Ooh. hype on it for me, so... Ouch. Psst. Did this make his list of top baseball movies? I guess there's no baseball. Yeah, not, not quite any baseball. Although Oscar Isaac should probably be in a baseball movie eventually. That would make sense. Okay, well, we are split on Annihilation, and uh, we clearly know what Adam thought of it. Let's move on to movie number two, which I will introduce, and this is Game Night. Or- oh! Guys, make sure you get a piece of this cheese. It's just the first one that follows us gets shot. Okay, Roger that. You drive safe. Directed by uh, John Francis Daly and Jonathan Goldstein. John Francis Daly in another universe was known as uh, Sweets and Bones and uh, the the, the main kid in Freaks and Geeks, and now he has uh, an aspiring career as a director. Uh, the film stars Jason Bateman and Rachel McAdams as a married couple who have a love of game nights, and uh, they host game nights regularly with their friends. 
And uh, one night, uh, Bateman's estranged brother, played by Ch- Kyle Chandler, surprises everyone with coming uh, back and visiting them during game night. And he sort of ups the ante with a sort of game night of his own. Um, and uh, you, there are uh, hijinks, and there are uh, guns and killings, and you, we don't really know what's real and what isn't. Uh, we don't know really what's been faked, what's been... Uh, pre-planned. It's sort of like a more comic version of the game, uh, similarly titled The Game with Michael Douglas and Sean Penn, Um, except this time the tone is a lot more light. There's sort of a lot of cynical side remarks throughout it, and uh, there's some pretty funny one-liners and uh, a nice comedic side performance by Jesse Plemons as the neighbor who feels neglected that he's been left out of all these game nights. Um, There were some Parts of the movie I, I liked. I liked the setup. Uh, I thought the characters, for the most part, were likable. Uh, I like Lamorne Morris's impression of Denzel Washington, who has a, a role in the film. Even though the actor Denzel Washington is not in the film, he's mentioned in sort of a funny su- subplot. Um, I don't know. Ultimately, I found it fairly predictable, and the humor got a little grating after a while. It's like, okay, they realize after a certain point that shit's getting real and that people are getting shot, and yet they still have all these pithy little funny cynical one-liners, like, oh, here's a loaded gun, oh, let's see if this goes off, and then it goes off, and it's like, you know, there's, they, they, they don't take it, they continue to not take it seriously. So that strained believability for me, um, and, uh, it just ran a little long for me, um, I wish the humor was a little sharper. It, this felt exactly like date night and horrible bosses mixed into the game, you know, Fincher's game, which is a much better movie. Uh, so the fact that it reminded me of better movies wasn't a good sign, and it ran too long, and I actually fell asleep during parts of it. So overall, it was a pretty forgettable two-star experience with uh, a few funny lines by Jesse Plemons, a good Denzel Washington impersonation, and uh, I did like the end bit where they show how Jesse Plemons planned uh, to set up his version of Game Night at the very end. If you see the movie, you know what I'm talking about, but that's worth staying for during the closing credits. What do you think, Todd? Yeah, I mean, I don't think you're giving it quite enough credit. I I mean, you are right. It is pretty much the comedy version of the game, and uh, there's a lot of horrible bosses in it. Obviously, the directors are the writers of horrible bosses, but I, I think it's most... Uh, its closest uh, relative is probably Neighbors. I think it's got that sort of uh, humor throughout it. I mean, it, it, it is a ridiculous movie, and it's a lot of fun, and... Uh, I think it's some of the most fun I've actually had watching a movie in the last year. Uh, I think it's, I mean, a lot of the actors are playing. Chandler is not, is as far away from his, like, FBI plays and pretty much everything else. And Rachel McAdams doesn't really take herself all that seriously, which is good to see. And uh, Jesse Plemons is obviously the uh, the standout uh, scene stealer, other than the cameo throughout the, 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 like, the last 30 minutes of the movie as the Bulgarian, which I won't spoil because that was one of the funnest parts of the movie is to actually realize that this person was in the movie. Um, I don't know, I think it's filled with a lot of cool twists and turns, and uh, it gets more and more ridiculous as it goes along, and it just gets more and more fun. And uh, it comes, the ending is a little bit convenient, but, I mean, it's the joy of getting there that, that matters. I, I think it actually is a really fun movie and worth checking out. I give it three stars. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to d- disagree with you too much on the film. I think it, it depends on who you're seeing it with, if you're in the right frames, if you're in the right mindset. I was like the only one in the theater seeing it, so I probably that probably wasn't the most conducive experience to enjoying it. Um, I don't know something about the the writing. You know, it's by the writers of Horrible Bosses, and like Horrible Bosses, this writing thinks it's funnier than it actually is. It gets a little grating and irritating. And uh, again, the one-liners just become excessive because you have to have a certain degree of believability with this, um, at least to buy into the premise. And there's no believability when people keep dying and are getting killed, and everyone's like, oh, it's, you know, it's just a game. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it does have that sort of, like, slapstick humor. I mean, there was a point that it actually reminded me of Police Academy 5, but I don't know. It High praise right there. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it. I I thought it was a lot of fun. I mean, and you probably do need to have a, a couple uh, adult beverages to uh, to get the full experience out of it. But I mean, I don't know. I I, I really really had fun watching the movie. Let me say this though, you know, these people play games, and really they don't actually seem that good at the games. That was another kind of problem with the movie. Like when Kyle Hayden, or, uh, when Kyle. Uh, uh, what's his name? Kyle Chandler. Chandler starts playing. He's awesome. And we're supposed to believe that he's this estranged brother who has not played these games, but when he gets up there, he's awesome, and Jason Bateman sucks. Like, again, it strains believability to a certain extent. I guess, but I mean, obviously, I mean, these games are probably regular, but they're not, like, weekly, obviously, because uh, uh, Lamorne Morris's character is constantly bringing a new girlfriend, right? So, I mean, it's like, I don't know. No. I, it's just uh, you're thinking. Of, you're thinking of the Billy Magnuson character. The Lamorne Morris character is married. Remember, and, and that's oh, the source okay, of the Denzel yeah, yeah. Washington joke. But see, like even yeah, that. I mean that that was sort of a funny premise, but it got a little boring and and repetitive by the end of the movie. It's like, okay, yes, you know, he brings a new girl, and this new girl is this, is this British character, and you know, I I don't know. It it, it needed sharper writing. That's the real problem. Well, I don't think the writer has done all that much. I mean, the the directors were the writers of Horrible Bosses and the writers of the new Spider-Man movie, but I don't think... The director, I think, was doing one of his first movies, if I remember right. Yeah, I guess I'll say also, um, I did like the visual style of this movie. I don't know exactly how the directors did it. I'm assuming they use miniatures, but there are a lot of like exterior shots that are made to look like game boards and game pieces that I thought was actually pretty cool looking. I didn't even notice that, but I mean, <laughs> I guess I would see that on the second viewing. It kind of looked like the uh, miniature uh, universe in Downsizing, which is probably not a good reference to make, but uh, <laughs> if you're aspiring to be downsizing, but it did kind of visually look interesting. So again, another uh, case of where we have to agree to disagree, but I think we're too tired and too ambivalent to really care that much. I can see what you're saying. I think you can understand parts of what I'm saying. So, uh, yeah, cheers, and let's move on. What's the third movie that we watched? Uh, the third movie we watched was the uh, new uh, Francis Lawrence movie called Red Sparrow. There could be no witnesses. So they gave me a choice. Die or become a sparrow. And, uh... It's about a former ballerina whose career was uh, derailed by a tragic 
leg injury and uh, is recruited to be a Russian intelligence officer and uh, infiltrate a, an operation led by a CIA agent who is uh, in on this big Russian operation. Uh, it stars Jennifer Lawrence and she is reuniting with her Hunger Games director and uh, it has the feel of like a big throwback uh international espionage thriller it sort of is like manchurian candidate with like the uh shocking like a uh, graphic material of l or something like that uh, it's basically like salt but unplugged and uh jennifer lawrence is really good in it and once you get used to her accent and joel egerton feels really miscast i'm not really sure why they chose that actor or that persona to be that character uh, Matthias Schoenarts, uh, once again, as we know, is anonymous, because you can't Victor really... Victor Laszlo. Yep, exactly. <laughs> Completely anonymous. <laughs> and, uh, I don't know, it has a, a real grittiness to it, but I think that's actually taken away by the, uh, the sexiness and the glossiness of the movie. I, I don't know that it really, uh, comes off as, uh, as strongly as it could have, uh, I don't know, it's a movie that I feel like is a lot better on paper than it actually was, and um, it's worth seeing for Jennifer Lawrence once again breaking out of her shell, but one thing I will say is that Bill Camp, I, I feel like he's becoming the next Richard Jenkins, because he is in basically everything, and he is awesome in everything, but you might not actually know his name until you see his face, and he eventually will get his own movie, and he will get nominated for an Oscar at some point, I feel like. So who was he in this movie? It says on Marty Gable. Was he part of the uh, CIA folks that were with? Yeah, he was. Uh, he was the uh, character. Okay, I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah, like Edgerton's uh, sort of direct uh, advisor or something. Right, I know who uh, you're talking about. Yeah, he was good. Either way, uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I enjoyed watching the movie. It, it is sort of uh, it, it is sort of interesting to watch and it's intriguing throughout, but it it is pretty pretty long. Uh, I feel like it could have had a lot more substance if it had gone way long, but uh, I don't know. I I, I ended up uh, giving it a middle ground two and a half stars. All right. Well, uh, I think this is where we finally strike. Uh, I I pretty much agree with everything you say. Um, I I agree with you that the movie's too long. I think that it's probably better on paper than it was actually in film version. Um, I do believe that there is some, you know, the, the sex scenes sort of undermine the grittiness that is really one of the film's strengths, and J-Law is really good in it. Um, I think the only difference that I have is I give it three stars. Uh, I enjoyed it, as in spite of its length, in spite of some of the unnecessary parts of it, like the excessive training sequences, um, I bought into it, and I found the story pretty interesting and compelling. And uh, as it went along, you know, as with a lot of spy movies, you're not really sure who J-Law's allegiances are to, and I think the movie does a pretty good job of setting that up. Uh, I think J-Law's accent is distracting in the first 20 minutes, but you get used to it pretty quickly. I think she's great in the movie. I mean, if it, she, it requires a lot of physical exhaustion, and uh, you're not really sure what her, where her motivations and allegiances lie, and she does a great job of that. Um, gosh, you know, maybe my biggest, like, criticism of the movie is I think if it had a better director and a tighter script, it could have been a great movie. I mean, give it, uh, Billy Ray or, I, I don't know, maybe, uh, uh, Robert De Niro, you know, it, and it could be a Oscar contender. Yeah, I mean, like I said, it, I mean, it's basically like Salt. I mean, I think Salt even had more, uh, esteemed, uh, company writing and directing the movie than this movie did. I mean... 
I mean, yeah, I, I think uh, I think it could have been something great. I, I just think uh, I, I think it looked a certain way, and then it felt a different way, and that's not exactly a good combination. Yeah. I did like the use of the skin graft. Uh, not often used as a tool of torture, but I really enjoyed that. Uh, you know, pe- felt... Pre- I mean, this movie felt, like, pretty intense for a commercial j- movie with Jennifer Lo- Lawrence released in March. I mean, there were some really violent sequences in it. And yeah, the, it had I definitely had it. the best, uh, or the most intense uh, torture scene since, like, Zero Dark Thirty, I think. Yeah, no shit. And, uh, it, you know, it, it, it said a lot about the characters. Uh, I will say, and then this is goes a little bit with a spoiler warning, but I'll tr- we'll try not to reveal too much. I think I was at around a three and a half star rating for this movie until toward the end of the movie, when they reveal who the American mole is in the Soviet Union, and this person basically offers to give him or herself up for Jennifer Lawrence. I found that scene and his reasons for giving himself up really unconvincing. You're telling me that this guy would have planted himself among the KGB elite for like 40 years, and then he sees J-Law and is like, hey, you know what? You're awesome. You're a ballerina. You know, take me instead. Exactly. (laughs) Not yeah, not the strongest way to end a, a movie that is all about like you don't know what's going on or who or who is allegiant to you. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> yeah, again, and this is where stronger writing, stronger direction would have would have maybe helped. But you know, I think for a for a mid September release by the director of the Hunger Games, uh, you know, it's uh, not bad. I was pleasantly surprised. In fact, of the three movies that we've reviewed today, it's probably the one I would give the highest uh, rating to. Well. I guess. I mean, I. I mean, I. I think that it's almost like a, a. A graphic female version of like Born or something like that. So I mean, I guess if like Paul Greengrass would have directed it or Tony Gilroy would have written and directed it, it could have been something like really, really interesting. But yeah, it, it sort of ends up being, what it is. I mean, it's a. It's a new. It's another Jennifer Lawrence movie to like go gaga over how talented she is. And other yeah. than that, it's not. It's not really. It's not really much else. I feel like. Well, I mean, maybe that's where we can disagree because, I mean, maybe the problem is it's not it, the movie's never boring. Maybe it could have been a good miniseries. Who knows? Like, maybe we need more time in those training sequences, which are good. But if you think about if if you think about deeply after the movie, they don't really have anything to do with the rest of the movie. They're just yeah, kind of excess. That's what, that's what I'm saying. Like, I mean, it it's interesting for what it is, but I mean, it could have gone way long if it wanted to. But I mean, instead, it's just like a really long movie that has like one purpose and i don't really know that it needed that long to uh get to that conclusion has adam seen it what do you think of it i don't know i don't think he has seen it actually Ooh, what do you think he would give it i think i think we need to raise the stakes on this i think he'd either give it two stars or three and a half stars I, Mm. i really don't know if there's an actual in between on this one Terry, Terry would definitely give it three stars. Yeah, yeah, this is definitely a three-star movie for Terry. Yeah. Well, I guess we'll just have to wait. Adam and Terry, if you're listening out there in the uh, podcast universe, maybe let us know your thoughts. Maybe tweet at us. You know, maybe call into the podcast every once in a while. Maybe devote a Red and Brown podcast episode to it. <laughs> ben, you can tell us your thoughts, too. So to recap, uh, a split vote. We'll do the Siskel and Ebert style. A split vote on Annihilation. 
Todd thought uh, these characters and circumstances were extremely unpredictable, or predictable, excuse me, and uh, derivative. And I thought that the ending sucked, but uh, otherwise it wasn't that bad. Another split vote for Game Night, uh, which I found sort of unfunny and meandering, and Todd found sharp and witty. And uh, a very mild split vote on Red Sparrow. Sounds about right. Other yeah. than... Uh the ending sucked, and uh, the rest is alright. Being a three-star movie doesn't really make a whole lot of sense, but we'll, we'll go with that. <laughs> what, Red Sparrow? <laughs> no, that's, that was what you said for Annihilation. Oh, I didn't. I don't think the whole movie sucks. I you just said the, the ending the, the sucked, last... and the rest is alright. That, that doesn't sound like three stars to me. Hey, you know, I, there were some good moments in the movie. I mean, that was a great alligator attack. Well, spoiler alert. I mean, I can't think of that many better alligator attacks. For I wish we would have seen the bear attack. That would have been cool. Yeah, that would have been cool. But the, I mean, I don't know how you know weren't distracted by how horrible the CGI was. That's just confusing. I, you know, I, I, I was, I was okay with it. I don't know how you weren't distracted by Jennifer Jason Lee's awesome acting. How could you give anything with her thumbs down? That's it's shocking. True. I mean, well, Georgia kind of sucked, but I mean, she was awesome <laughs> in it. So. <laughs> Ouch. Well, uh, we're getting on to other things. So, uh, we are now going to move into our power rankings. You can't top that. Yeah, that's the movie about the horse. I'm going to pull an audible at the last minute here. I'm kind of nervous now. Power rankings. Not including Fargo. All right, for uh, our power rankings uh, this podcast, I I won the last one, so I got to choose our category, and... I chose, since uh, opening day is going to be upon us very shortly, I chose the top five fictional baseball players. Now that could be movies or TV characters. And this will be interesting because it's not just like picking movies, it's picking actual characters. And uh, this should be a lot of fun to talk about. What do you think? Uh, I'm very intrigued by it. Um, I am also intrigued by that. The fact, the fact that you kept it open to TV and film. So uh, we'll have to see where uh, our lists may overlap. Do you want to start or do you want me to go? Uh, I can start. All um, right, go for it. My number five, I guarantee, is not going to be on your list. That is uh, Jack Elliott from uh, Mr. Baseball. That is uh, the Tom Selleck movie. Uh, <laughs> mustache Rides for the Ladies. Uh it's, it's not a great movie, but it's a really fun movie and a, a really uh, interesting character, a really classic Tom Selleck-type character. He plays a former uh, star who's uh, uh, sort of relegated to playing in Japan, uh, and he has to adjust to their customs, And uh, but, I mean, it's Tom Selleck, so he's obviously a ladies' man, and uh, he's way too self-absorbed and brash to really fit in, so... Uh, it's an interesting uh, sort of semi-pro baseball movie, and uh, Tom Selleck is as as good as it gets of that kind of uh, very very uh, masculine character. You seen that movie? Uh, I've never seen that movie, but you know that's that's the pinnacle of Tom Selleck like B movies. Exactly. Yeah, this is exactly why I chose it. And I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't it doesn't get any better than that for Tom Selleck. So I have a question for you. When you were putting together your list, were you thinking of baseball characters that you like and movies that you like, or were you thinking about characters that actually had really good baseball skills? Uh, it was a mix of the of the two. I mean, that's why I left it so broad because it, it made like we could talk about a lot more things. But yeah, I 
there there are some characters that I was thinking like they they are definitely the best player on the team or the best player in the movie and that makes it that or and in, there's also some that are like really characters that I really like or I not necessarily movies that I really like just just characters that I like or characters that are the best uh, players. So what were you going with? Well, see that, that that's interesting. I think ideally I was trying to do a mix like you, but what I found myself constantly going back to is p- characters who were actually uh, skilled at baseball, regardless of if they were characters that were particularly likable or not. Which will lead me to my number five pick, which uh, I'm going to say touche. There's no freaking way this is on your top five list. This isn't even a baseball movie, and this character isn't even seen playing baseball in it. Uh, but it is Joaquin Phoenix as Merrill Hess in M. Night Shyamalan Ding Dong's Signs from 2002. Uh, Merrill, at this point in his life, is working at a gas station and moves in with his brother, Graham, played by uh, Mel Gibson. And uh, in that movie, he's given up on Jesus and the Passion of the Christ. And uh, Merrill, you know, he, 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 he's not, uh, he, he's done some bad things in his life. We don't really know what, but we do hear in the film that he owns like seven minor league records, including home runs. So you got to think that he's a pretty powerful baseball player. Uh, we do know also that one of his records is strikeouts. And I think he has the more strikeouts than like numbers two through five on the all-time minor league list of strikeout leaders so uh, Merrill Hess played by Joaquin Phoenix memorably and probably his most mainstream role ever uh, my number five baseball player that is a great pick I did not even remember that he was a baseball player but uh, that's just going to show how this list is going to go that's uh, that's awesome I went with a lot of, like actual like baseball uh, movies and shows but I like it. I like where your head's at. I actually yes. thought about doing something like that, but uh, I didn't actually get there. So, yeah. See, I didn't want to go with the conventional baseball movies, you know. But that's why this list is so open-ended and fascinating. And why predicting Terry and Adam's list is going to be uh, even more hard. Okay. Exactly. Uh, my number four is Yeah Yeah from uh, the Sandlot. He's my favorite character in the movie. Uh, He's not the best player on the team, obviously, but he has his own unique style, and uh, his contri- his best contribution is actually being dropped from uh, like a bungee cord into the backyard of the beast. But he was too busy like playing with his lips to actually like hold onto the ball, so he actually didn't uh, get the ball back from the uh, from the the dog that they think is a giant monster. Uh, he does earn like a duck, but he is definitely worthy of this list, uh, and uh, he has a lot of classic lines and. Uh, He's, yeah, definitely my favorite character in that very nostalgic baseball movie, The Sandlot. Interesting. So, will he be the only character from The Sandlot on your list? Because if that's the case, that's that's sort of a surprising pick. I don't know how many people would have gone with Yaya. Uh, yeah, he is, and Yaya, I realize that. Nicely done. <laughs> yes. Well, number four on my list uh, is a more conventional pick, um, although you could actually say this is uh, a character that was in two movies because this movie was remade, so I'm just going to go with the character instead of the specific movie, and that character is Amanda Wurlitzer from The Bad News Bears, played in the Uh. 1975 version by, memorably by Tatum O'Neill, and in the 2005 remake uh, by Richard Linklater, 
uh, by an actress named Sammy Kane Craft, who I see on IMDb tragically died in 2012. That's really a buzzkill. Uh, but anyway, um, you know, this girl kicked butt. You know, she was uh, always getting in uh, Buttermaker's face, and uh, she had a killer arm, and all the boys on the team had a crush on her. And uh, she just kicked ass, you know, like she kicked ass and took names. And she was like maybe, you know, the inspiration for Uma Thurman's character in Kill Bill. I mean, she was blonde and she was really talented and, uh, you know, just a, just a great pitcher. And if you're looking at her skill level relative to all the other boys on the Bears, um, you know, out of this world. Yeah, that's a, that's a great pick. I actually chose a different character from this movie that will uh, show up later on my list. But, uh, yeah, I, I definitely think that is definitely a more memorable character, for sure. Uh, so already you're basically changing your list because you realize mine's better. No, I'm just saying that you picked it for a different reason. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, my number three is uh, Crash Davis from Bull Durham. It's played by, of course, Kevin Costner. Uh, Bull Durham is the gold standard of all baseball comedies. It was actually nominated for Best Original Screenplay. Uh, he's a great men mentor character, sort of, to Tim Robbins' uh, Nuke Lelouch, uh, teaching him uh, the etiquette of baseball and uh, waving off signals and uh, challenging him on his uh, pursuit of Susan Sarandon's groupie baseball uh, girl character. And... Uh, He's a great veteran catcher, and he's got a, a lot of experience behind him, and uh, no list of baseball anything in, in movie context would be complete with mention of Kevin Costner. So Crash Davis is definitely deserving to be on the list. He's my number three. Interesting pick as, as well, because, you know, we could go with a lot of Kevin Costner characters. I mean, when I was researching this, like every other movie Kevin Costner has made, he's played a baseball player. I think we both like The Upside of Anger, right? I mean, he's definitely... You know, that Actually, was, man, that almost the, made my list. <laughs> it really almost made my. I mean, that—that's the Kevin Costner baseball player I would have picked. The—the the problem is, I think it's a little bit of a cutesy pick, and uh, we don't really know if he was that good of a baseball player or not. He's obviously a very talented radio host in his post-baseball career. I think that is actually, uh, to me, that might be his best performance too. Like, I—I I, I think he's amazing in that movie. I'll screw it. Okay, I'm uh, I'm calling an audible here. Number three on my list is actually Kevin Costner in The Upside of Anger. Uh, he plays uh, in the movie a character by the name of Denny, I believe. I may have to consult with IMDb here just to make sure. But uh, he is a former baseball player for the Detroit Tigers. Oh, yep, Denny Davies. Yeah, and he now hosts a radio show. And uh, he hosts it with Mike Binder, who is the director of The Upside of Anger. And he has some great scenes in the film where uh, he has banter. I, if I remember correctly, it's been a while since I've seen it, uh, but I think he's really actually sick of, like, the sports talk. And uh, he's really trying to bone his next-door neighbor, played by Joan Allen, and uh, Terry Ann Wolfmeyer. He has a really funny scene where he does a radio shout-out to Terry Ann Wolfmeyer. And um, there's some excellent banter between those characters. It's kind of like the penultimate older Kevin Costner role, and he's hilarious in it. And, uh, yeah, absolutely, I... Uh, totally thought of that character long and it, that he was the first character I thought of when I made this list actually so you know there's that so number three Denny Denny Davies in uh, The Upside of Anger it actually was one of the first characters I thought of too when I just said fictional baseball players because I, I thought of like Larry Bernandez for like the Seattle Mariners commercials and I thought of this character because I wasn't actually thinking of baseball movies but I didn't actually go that direction, so I love that you actually uh, decided to <laughs> eventually go this way. <laughs> <laughs> 
hey, it's also know. got one of my favorite young casts ever. I love Carrie Russell, Erica Christensen, and Evan Rachel Wood. They all give some of their best work in this movie. It's a great ensemble cast. It is a great movie. It is one of the most underrated movies of the of the 2000s. I think it gets dismissed as a chick flick, and I think it came out in like April or May that year, so no one really took it seriously at the Oscars. Ebert gave it a four-star review, though. Um, and it's really a great movie. I think it, it, it's, it definitely is in the chick flick category, but it's also in the sports movie category. It breaches those two extreme opposites in a really unique and fluid way, and uh, I think it holds up well, and it's certainly Joan Allen's best performance ever. She should have won an Oscar that year. My number two is Kelly Leak from the Bad News Bears, which uh, in the original version was played by Jack Earl Haley, and the uh, Richard Linklater version was played by a kid named Jeffrey Davies, who did not actually make another movie. Yeah, that was his only credit on IMDb, actually. Wow. Uh, but uh, this was Jack Earl Haley before his like exile from Hollywood, before... Uh, little children he plays a motorcycle riding like bully kid who's the best baseball player in the area who sort of stumbles upon this like ragtag group of uh little league uh players uh led by their drunken coach and um he's essentially like a ringer that they bring in to play for the team uh buttermaker finds him uh it's he's he's probably the highest war of any uh, baseball player in comparison to the other players in his movie other than maybe uh, Benny the Jet Rodriguez in the Sandlot uh, the, I, I think he probably is like the best player I think he says he hits like over 800 or something in the in the throughout the course of the movie uh, I think the more memorable characters are definitely like you said Amanda or Tanner the second baseman but uh, Jack Earl Haley's badass punk player is definitely the best player on the team and that's why he makes my spot at number two but don't you think that if it was a hitting contest between him and Amanda Wurlitzer, she would kick his ass? Mm, no. Why? why? <laughs> she was she was like the pitcher. But, I mean, he claims to like, have an 800 batting average, but do we really know that? I think he's all talk. I think that's the point of his character. I don't know. I mean, he is a punk, but I don't think he would... I don't think he would lie about that kind of thing. But his batting average? I, I don't know. He wasn't trying to impress no, anybody. No one would lie about having an 800 batting average. He wasn't trying to impress anybody. He was just uh, like the the Crash Brothers on like the Mighty Ducks or something like that. They were just like there to show off and like they they were just doing their own thing. They're just like badass in their own way and they don't actually need to brag about anything. Okay, well we'll Mighty see. Ducks two the D two the Mighty Ducks. That's what I was talking about. Exactly. I can't remember their names. <laughs> impressive that you remembered that movie uh i'm gonna go to number two on my list and uh this actually was a baseball movie and it's a movie that i would say is probably my favorite baseball movie of all time even though it's not that widely seen and the movie is sugar by anna bolden and ryan fleck from 2008 and the character uh is miguel sugar santos played by alginas perez soto uh, who only has, I think, two credits on his IMDb profile. Um, so as Sugar, uh, he uh, is a Dominican baseball star who is recruited to play in the minor league system in the United States, and the movie kind of profiles his journey from the DR to the U.S. Um, in this farm system. So he's going to weird places like uh, 
what Davenport, Iowa, and I think some places, other places in the Midwest. And a lot of the movie isn't baseball. It's him talking with his teammates um, and really the, like the homestay families that he gets to know along the way. And uh, without spoiling the movie too much, uh, it kind of goes a different direction in the last 30, 40 minutes when Miguel realizes that he may not have the all-star MLB career he aspires to and actually ends up in New York City, but does something equally as productive and interesting. So uh, he's a really captivating character. and it's a really great movie about the the what what actually is like the real lived experiences of most athletes, especially most baseball players, not from the United States. So definitely a movie worth checking out. My number two character of all time, Miguel Sugar Santos. That's a good choice. I remember I actually had to convince you to actually watch that movie. I really love that movie that's a not lot. True. So it that's, is. That, that, that's a lie. I saw that movie at the Portland International Film Festival, man. Before no, anyone didn't. knew about it. I yes, told I you did. to watch that movie. No way. I saw the directors. I, I saw a Q&A with Anna Bowden and Ryan Fleck. You don't know what you're talking about. I don't you're believe that. You're out of your that. element, Donnie. Yo, why would I make that up? What, am I going to make a... Why I mean, would I make that up? <laughs> Who else could I possibly be talking about? <laughs> I don't know. Adam? Ben? Did it he see it? definitely was not them. I mean... I really don't think it was Terry. I don't think I'd have to convince him to watch any baseball movie. I'm I'm, I'm positive that it was you. Well, I'm positive I know what happened when I saw the movie because I saw the directors at a Q and A in Portland. Well, that's that's pretty awesome. If that's yeah, true. yeah, it is true. It was like you know before anyone knew about the movie. So I mean, I had that. It, movie it is a really good movie though. I I, I do is. like. It's a great uh, movie. I I do like the uh, the minor league uh, circuit the. Uh, the sort of behind the scenes major league kind of a feel I, I honestly thought about putting Justin Timberlake's character on trouble at the curve on here just because I I really like watching the like the the rise to getting to the major leagues uh, feel of, uh, of these kind of movies so yeah and I think that people watch choice. it people, people watch it because it's a baseball movie but it ultimately is much more a movie about uh, the United States and American culture and how um, immigrants who assimilate to that culture leave part of their identity behind, but also sort of develop new, um, I don't know, interests and uh, motivations in life. So, great movie. Agreed. Okay, Drum so roll, my number one comes from uh, the uh, TV show Eastbound and Down, and that is Kenny Powers. Uh, I absolutely love the show. It's played by Danny McBride and is most indulgent and ridiculous, and he's absolutely in his element. Uh, he plays a drunken former baseball prodigy, sort of, whose career's derailed because he's a complete asshole and uh, his talents were fading. And uh, it's made by the same guys who did, like, Observe and Report and his new HBO series, Vice Principles. Uh, but watching Kenny Powers sort of go through the ups and downs of being a burnt-out athlete is uh, really sort of sad, but also amazing and really realistic at the same time. And... It is one of the funniest shows that I've seen on TV, and Danny McBride has never actually fit more into a character than he does a, uh, a burnt-out athlete, and, uh, you're f***ing out! Kenny Powers, my number one, for sure. Well, it's a great baseball name. I cannot say that I've ever seen the series, um, but, uh, sounds like it's worth watching. Uh, yes, it is. Okay, we're just being clear about this. You're convincing me to watch it, and I'll watch it, 
but I did see sugar. Maybe I'm thinking the fact that you didn't really like it originally, and I convinced you to watch it again, and then you really liked it the second time. Maybe that was what it was. It was something I'm like that. Sure I remember I talking to you about this movie. I don't think you liked it the first time. Maybe that. Maybe that was what I was thinking. That's maybe a little more likely. Well, anyway, uh, Keddie Powers, Danny McBride, an actor who I've never really liked, but I'll, I'll certainly give him a shot um, if you say so. All right. Uh, at least I, at least watch season two. Like season two is where he is at is at at its best. It takes a bit to get going, sort of like Breaking Bad, but I mean it is it, it gets really really good. Okay. There's only four seasons. It's they're short episodes. My number one baseball player, I'm shocked, is not on your list. Shocked, shocked to see that there's gambling in this establishment. Uh, I can't believe that I didn't hear this character mentioned at all, and that is Mitch Kramer. And actually, what I could, what I, what I tried to do originally is, uh, because essentially the, the Mitch Kramer character is the same as the Blake Jenner character and everybody wants some, uh, I'm going to merge those characters. So the greatest baseball character of all time is... Mitchie Kramer, who becomes Jake in Everybody Wants Some when he goes to college in choice. Southeast Texas in 1980. I mean, he's just an awesome pitcher. You know, he's got the awesome look, and uh, he's just cool all around. And, uh, you know, who wouldn't want to hang out with him? And he's got skill to match. And he's not arrogant, you know? He's level-headed. He, he was clutch in the ninth inning of that, uh, of that game before he got his ass kicked. Well, yeah, that that would be motivation. Like, like I've always been struck by that scene, like how little he seems to actually care about the game. That he just wants to get out of there before he gets his ass paddled, um, and that's you know pretty cool, I would say. Yeah, he's got he's got to actually get convinced to strike the guy out, like uh, sort of like in Major League when he when he's like strike this mother huh. out. Like that's pretty much what like uh, what the blonde kid says to him. Like uh, Hirschfelder was like the catcher, right? So I mean he. Yeah. He he didn't really give he didn't really care so, but yeah that that is a good choice I wish I would have thought of that but I actually did not uh, that did not actually come in my radar when I was thinking of this list so I'm actually a little jealous. Did you have any honorable? Did you have any honorable mentions? Uh, my honorable mentions were uh, Roger Dorn from uh, Major League, uh, Marla Hooch from A League of Their Own, who uh, we know uh, if she was a guy we we we'd be talking about the Yankees and uh, Bobby Rayburn from the fan which is wesley snipes character who is uh stalked by robert de niro's uh crazed lunatic uh stalker fan character and uh he's uh is one another one of those like high war performances like several time mvp if i remember right what about you uh my honorable mentions were also marla hooch uh, Jimmy Dugan, who was apparently a player before he became a manager. I believe he played for the Cubs. He must have been pretty good. Mm-hmm. And also the character of Finnegan from Everybody Wants Some, who I don't know if he was really a good baseball player, but he's definitely the funniest one on the team. Which which character was that? Uh, the guy played by Glenn... Uh, what's his name? Uh, Glenn Powell. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, I, I remember that. Good choices. Okay, uh, so... That brings us to our uh, competition part of this uh, podcast, which would be predicting what Adam thought of this list to decide who picks our next category. Uh, I have uh, his list on email right now. Uh, Adam, uh, Zach, do you want to 
predict what you think uh, Adam thought of uh, thought of this category? Yes, I will predict it. I'm going uh, Dottie Henson, Mel Clark from Angels in the Outfield, Stan Ross from Mr. 3000, Benny the Jet Rodriguez, and Rick Wildthing Vaughn. Was that five through one? Yes. Okay. Uh, my list goes uh, Scotty Smalls from The Sandlot, Mel Clark from Angels in the Outfield, Kenny Powers from Eastbound and Down, Roy Hobbs from The Natural, and Benny the Jet Rodriguez from The Sandlot. And we'll see what Adam says. He says, honorable mention, Marla Hooch, uh, Ham Porter from The Sandlot, Henry Rowan Gardner from Rookie of the Year, and Mel Clark from Angels in the Outfield. Ah. So we both missed that one. Number five, Billy Chapel from For the Love of the Game. Oh, I was thinking about that. I, I, I thought he had no I, no chance of seeing that movie. <laughs> yeah, kind of me too. Uh, Wild Thing from Major League. <clears throat> That's it. Kelly Leak from Bad News Bears. Benny the Jet from The Sandlot. And Dottie from A League of Their Own. Oh, I killed you, Todd. So, uh, yeah, I got one of those. And you got, what, three? And I got three. Yep. Okay, so you get to pick the uh, next me, I know category. <laughs> <laughs> and that also brings okay, us now... to a new part of our list, which we normally do Oscar trivia, but Terry's not here to uh, we'll predict Terry's list for our uh, twos. The winner of who gets to choose a movie for somebody else to watch. Uh, what do you have for Terry's list, Zach? Number five, Jimmy Dugan. Number four, Sam Malone from Cheers. Number three, Crash Davis. Number two, Benny the Jet. And number one, Roy Hobbs. All right, I have Ricky Vaughn, number five. Henry Rowan Gartner, number four. Jim Bowers from Little Big League, number three. Because I know that he loves a certain quote about uh, Dave Magadan from that character. Uh, number two, Benny the Jet Rodriguez. And number one, Dottie Hinson. And going to Terry's list, he actually has a write-up on uh, some of these. <laughs> uh, his honorable mentions are Sugar, uh, Wild Thing, Moonlight Graham from Field of Dreams, Hamilton Porter from The Sandlot, and Lou Collins from uh, Little Big League. His number five is Chet Stedman from Rookie of the Year, which... Uh, I guess I got the wrong character from that. Uh, it's played by Gary Busey. He says, Chet is the grizzled old vet trying to hang on for one last ride while mentoring young Henry. Chet epitomizes the washed-up former star trying to hold on to, tight to the game that he loves, and he has no idea how to motivate the have-to. And uh, his number four is Bowers <laughs> from Little Big League. I can't believe I yeah, called that. He says it's possibly the most underrated baseball movie I know. Uh, it has been billed as a kid's movie, but it is most, one of the most knowledgeable movies about the intricacies of the game that I have seen. Just watch the scene when Billy is convincing the general manager and pitching coach that he can manage as a 12-year-old. My favorite characters... One of my favorite characters is Bowers, played by one of the darlings of the 90s, Jonathan Silverman. He is, quirky, he is a quirky reliever that loves to have fun no matter what it takes he pulls off one of the best pickoff plays ever against uh, none other than Ken Griffey Jr. He is the whiz of al algebra <laughs> and he <laughs> truly appreciates and understands the intricacies of the water balloon yes yes he yes. does good, good I don't know anyone that loves a movie more than Terry his number three is Roy Hobbs from The Natural 
Uh, some might not appreciate the romantic look at, at baseball brought by the natural, but none can deny the greatness of Roy Hobbs, played by Robert Redford. He shows a love for the game more than any other fictional baseball player. No list like this would be complete without him. Yeah, low-key, I think uh, the natural is really overrated. Yeah, it really kind of sucks. I can give it's it like one and a half stars. Yeah me, yeah, me too. At least we're agreed on that. Uh, number two, he has Benny the Jet Rodriguez. He says, I could have filled this list with the entire group of the Sandlots, Smalls, Ham, Yeah, Yeah, Squints. However, why not go with the legend of the PF Flyers? He was the best player on the team and was a vo- focal point uh, at the climactic ending. He pickled the beast and won. He also stole home for the Dodgers, thanks to the longest windup in pitching history. <laughs> I think it was like 30 seconds from first move until the jet crossed home plate. Very true, very true. And his number one is Jimmy Dugan from A League of Their Own. This might be considered cheating because he doesn't really play in the movie outside of a, a late-night batting practice session, but none can match Tom Hanks as Jimmy Dugan. He is a former big leaguer that is too injured to play or join the war effort. He hurt his knee falling out of a, win- a room, uh, hotel room window. There was a fire, which he started, and Mr. Harvey had to pay for. <laughs> I am... I meant... <laughs> I meant to write a thank you letter, Mr. Harvey, but they wouldn't give me anything sharp to write with. <laughs> uh, he ends up managing one of the new girls' baseball teams, really just for a paycheck, but he falls in love with the job, his team, and his ball players. It, it, it probably my favorite Tom Hanks performance, and he has rarely been funnier or more crass. Okay, so out of those, how many did you get? I think I got four or three. I got uh, Bowers, Benny, and that's it. So I got two. So I got Roy you didn't Hobbs, get Chet. You didn't. Benny, so you got one and Jimmy and Dugan. Jimmy Dugans. So you I won both. Again. You got you got his, you got his top three. Well, congratulations! You, know, you get to pick no a cry- movie for one of us to watch. There's no crying in baseball. Do you have any ideas, or are you gonna hold off? I think I'm going to hold off, but now that you mention it, uh, I did happen to win the trivia last week, and actually this is now the third time in a row I've won trivia, Uh, but let's talk about the movie that I made you watch uh, last time as a result of my win, and what movie was that, Todd? (laughs) Uh, That was uh, uh, Salo, or The 120 Days of Sodom, which was directed by Pier Paolo Pasolini. It is a movie set in World War II Italy uh, where Nazi leaders kidnap 18 men and women who are enslaved and sexually tortured for 120 days. And I I honestly love Italian movies. Like, the start of the movie, I, I mean, I love the look, the feel, the music, everything about it. And uh, then it kind of becomes apparent that it's sort of, like, hostile. Like it, it's, like, this, like, voyeuristic look at this, like, really bizarre uh like subculture and uh it's got but with this like slow build-up and then something completely depraved afterwards it also is a little bit like dexter season five with the plot and the implications about human nature but it also is a lot like get out in a way with uh the implications of it and uh you know sex slaves and shit and uh 
also a little bit like battle royale with like the the rituals which also sort of makes it like eyes wide shut in a way like there obviously there's a lot of things that were inspired by this kind of like I don't even know if you call it a genre like this like style of uh, B movie almost or I don't even know um, things I thought about the movie I mean it's like the attempts at that these uh, these kids eventually have at escaping are kind of hilarious it's a lot like a man escaped where like they get up and they just like run across the room past all these people with guns like it's actually gonna work like they're running toward a window in like a like a building that's really high and like like where are they actually gonna go but it's like they just get up and like silently just like run across the room it's it, it's kind of I mean it's sort of just like uh okay and uh, the acting is uniformly pretty awful. Uh, the, the main f female character is like uh, Joan Crawford in uh, Mommy Dearest Level Bad. And uh, I don't know, the movie, I actually kind of enjoyed watching it. It's like, it's like sort of, it's definitely provocative and sadistic and perverted and bizarre. But I mean, it's kind of hard to watch, but it's also really difficult to uh, take your eyes off of. I actually give it three stars. I I never thought about her comparison to Joan Crawford, but that's that's not a bad one. Uh, I also never thought about Dexter season five when I was watching it, um, but <laughs> now that you mention it, um, I think this is one of the great movies of the nineteen seventies. I give it four stars, and it's on my list of the best movies of nineteen seventy five. You know, you have to know the historical context a little bit with it. You know, Pier Paolo Pasolini was this very iconoclastic, uh, sort of anarchist, vagabond director in Italy who really resisted the system. And obviously he was making uh, some kind of statement about the fascist government. You know, the film is set in kind of the waning days of World War II um, with the main, the, the, the four uh, male characters in charge are fascists, but they represent each uh, different facet of society, be it religion or politics or economy. Um, basically, I'd like to think of the world that they're in as a world uh, completely removed of uh, restraint or any sort of law and uh, because they're carnal and depraved and uh, there's no sort of, um, I don't know, uh, rules about anything, they just basically uh, have sex with whoever they want, whenever they want. They have their own and rules, though. They have a whole book of rules. That's why I said it was like, it's like Battle Royale in that way. It's like, it, it's, it's set in its own, like, contained like space and they have like this rule book of like things that that are supposed to happen which is also sort of eyes wide shut in the same way it's like it's like this they they have like this bo this book of how this is actually supposed to go like it like they're following some some like thing that's passed down or something well like they're they're actually announcing that like the guy is like on the ledge like announcing to like everybody there like wh like what's going to happen and why because it's it's in the book it's a statement about uh, basically corrupt tyrants and when they uh, are able to attain power that's unchecked. Um, and in that way, you can read the film as a metaphor for, I don't know, government overreach and people who are basically monarchs and dictators. Um, and it's really fascinating. And you're right, the, the way you characterize it, I mean, it's brutal to watch, but you really can't look away either. Um, 
And, uh, you know, the backstory behind the film is fascinating because Pasolini was murdered shortly after the, the release of the film. And for many years, it was sort of this long, legendary, lost film that you couldn't really watch abroad. And when the Criterion DVD came out, it was like a really rare copy and it was worth thousands of dollars. So there's a, a sort of aura and mystique around the film. Um, and I think it's one of the best looks at a government that is deranged and run by people who should never have any sort of power because they're corrupt and evil. Uh, so you can read it in a lot of ways, and I think it's a great movie. I don't know about one of the mo best movies of the 70s, but uh, it was definitely worth watching. I, I, I was sort of hypnotized for uh, the duration of it. So, Great score by Ennio Morricone as well. And curiously, uh, did you know that Pier Paolo Pasolini was also a poet? And the title of the movie, The Best of Youth, which we've talked about on this podcast maybe a couple times, comes from a poem by Pier Paolo Pasolini. Did you know that? No, I did not know that. Well, the more you know. You're just full of useful information. Yeah. By the way, I don't think this is a movie that Terry should see. No, I, I'm pretty sure he would probably give it like a half a star. Well, oh, well, now it kind of is intriguing. Maybe like, you know, because I won the last contest, I should make him watch it. I don't know. He may never come back to this podcast again. <laughs> <laughs> I know. After he had to apparently sit through uh, Holy, Holy Motors. Motors. Which, <laughs> uh, would he like this movie more than Holy Motors? This movie is at least coherent. You can understand it. And there's no t cars that talk to each other. <laughs> I, I, guess, I guess it is linear that, that is true He probably would like that a little more Alright, well I will have to give it some time uh, To simmer on another, another movie That you will have to watch Maybe another like uh, movie where people eat shit From the 70s um, it Might be fun, <laughs> I don't know Is he in Pink Flamingos? That might be a good one I've never seen it actually So, you know I'll, I'll have to think about that, that That's not as good as Salad well, moving on, um, obviously there's only two of us, so we can't really do Oscar trivia. Uh, I mean, we could, but we would just be cheating. So instead, what Todd and I have planned is we are going to do a milestone uh, yearly review. We are going to go back in time 30 years and reveal our top 10 films of from the year 1988. So... Uh, we're not going to go into them too much in depth, but we're going to kind of mention them, things that we like about them. And, uh, you know, looking at this year again, I thought it was a pretty strong year, and we might have some overlap on our list. What do you think, Todd? Uh, yeah, we might have some overlap. I'm not actually sure about that. I'm not sure we actually like the same movies. I'm, I'm not a huge fan of this year, to be honest. Well, there you go. Already, we're seeing some uh, major dissension in the ranks. Uh, would you like to start? All right, my uh, my honorable mentions uh, go to uh, the Jodie Foster Oscar-winning performance in The Accused, uh, Everybody's All American, which is the Taylor Hackford uh, football movie with John Goodman and Dennis Quaid, which is actually one of Dennis Quaid's best performances, and uh, the Sidney Lumet movie uh, Running on Empty, a uh, really underrated movie, but not quite as good as uh, as the Oscars actually portrayed it as being. Yeah, that's also on my uh, honorable mentions list. Really good River Phoenix performance. Um, I also have Who Framed Roger Rabbit on my honorable mentions list. Uh, Eight Men Out, best, the best baseball movie of the 80s. Uh, the Naked Gun from the Files of the Police Squad, introducing the memorable character of Lieutenant Frank Drebin. And uh, Another Woman, the Woody Allen film. 
Uh, all good choices. Uh, maybe one or two might show up on my list a little later. Alright. Uh, so going my 10 through 8, I got uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which you just mentioned. It's obviously a, a really great movie. Uh, sort of in it, something different than we've ever seen before at that point uh, in Hollywood. Uh, my number 9 is Die Hard, which uh, is Terry's favorite action movie ever, which I, I love and one of the great villains of all time played by Alan Rickman, and my number eight is, uh, uh, mentioned earlier in the podcast, Bull Durham, which is, like I said, the pinnacle of all baseball comedies. It is a, a great movie, and I remember, I remember Ebert actually said it, it knows so much about baseball and so little about love, and that is why it's such a great movie, so, and that is why it's on my list. (laughs) Yeah, well, those three movies have all aged pretty well, and all have, pretty strong memories in the minds of viewers 30 years later. I've never really understood the love for all three of them. I gotta be honest. Um, of those three, I probably like Bull Durham the best, but... Uh, you just said I, Who Framed Roger Rabbit was on your list for uh, your honorable mention. <laughs> well, it, I mean, obviously from a, like a technical aspect, it's really impressive, and it's like a milestone in the history of animated films, but it's certainly not remembered the way that it... it the Disney movies are in the early 90s and I think it was one of those movies that for 1988 was pretty amazing. I don't know about what what uh, certainly what younger audiences would think of it today. Well, the numbers 10 through 8 on my list are much more esoteric and uh, much less fondly remembered if they are remembered at all. Number 10 on my list is uh, a film that the French title is Les Petites Amours but I knew it as Kung Fu Master, and that is a film by the great director Agnes Varda, who made some news at the Oscars this year, and it's uh, the look at a romantic relationship between a 40-year-old woman and a 14-year-old boy. Um, Sounds a lot dirtier than it actually is, uh, but pretty interesting French comedy drama. Uh, Number nine is Pele the Conqueror, directed by Billy August, with a great performance by Max von Sydow. And uh, the film tells the story of two Swedish immigrants who uh, come to Denmark to find work, this kind of grandfather-type figure, and uh, his younger son. Actually, he's his father, but he's he's older in the film. Great sort of look at immigration and sort of uh, getting used to a new land, a new culture. And uh, number eight is Bird, the great Clint Eastwood biography of Charlie Parker, with a great performance by Forrest Whitaker, one of Eastwood's best films. Uh, Beautifully incorporates music along with a very troubled, drug-addicted life. Um, Gritty portrayal, uh, a long film, but uh, an excellent biopic. And if you're a fan of jazz, it's a must-see. I have actually not seen any of those. Two of them have been on my list for a long time, but I don't. I'm not familiar with the first one. So, uh, good picks, though. I, I, Bird has always been one that I've wanted to see. I've just never actually gotten around to it. Okay, my numbers seven through five. I have Dangerous Liaisons, which was a, a big, uh, Oscar hit. It's a, it's a sort of a classical, uh, romance and. Uh, some of some of the best work that you'll ever see by uh, Uma Thurman and uh, and uh, Glenn Close. Uh, in number six, I have Midnight Run, which I randomly heard was uh, Brett Bielema's favorite movie. Uh, not that that actually matters or anything, but it's a it's a really fun like well, Brett uh, says so buddy comedy. <laughs> and uh, number five, I have uh, Rain Man, which was the Best Picture winner. It's uh, it's something that. It doesn't necessarily hold up as well as it probably should, but it, it 
it, it does have really good performances and it, it has really good uh, interesting thing to say about like these estranged brothers uh and, and maybe tom cruise's second best performance ever after born on the fourth of july rain man is a really good movie and uh that comes in at my number five of 1988 so i've never seen midnight run which is uh, really bad i feel bad about that i need to watch it sometimes it's been on my list for quite a while uh, especially now but, Brett Bielema loves it. I just... <laughs> you said it was his favorite movie on, uh, on College Game Day. I think that might have been, like, last year or maybe the year before. I'm I curious. mean, it, it's, it's a good... I mean, it's, it's a crime comedy with De Niro and Charles Grodin, who uh, definitely should have been, uh, you know, Walter White. And, uh, I mean, it's directed by Martin Brest. He's done some really good movies like that. Yeah, and, and Bill Simmons talks quite a, a bit about it on his podcast and in his articles. It, it's really unforgivable. i got to watch it. Um, as for Dangerous Liaisons, saw it a long time ago. don't remember it particularly well. But did you ever see uh, Valmont, which was the Milos Forman film that came out around the same time and was based on the same novel? I have not. And I believe Uma was in that too, right? No, I don't. I don't think she was. Let's look it up maybe quickly here. But it was literally like it's with Colin Firth and Annette Bening. Uh, Feruza Balk, I believe, played the uh, Uma Thurman character, and I'm not seeing her name. But I don't know. Hmm. Might be worth checking out. I have not seen it. And oh, Vod Vatel, that was the other Uma movie, not Belmont. Which one? It was uh, Vatel. Oh. It was another drama romance like that with uh, Gerard Depardieu and Tim Roth. Roland Joffe movie. There you go. There we go. Shout out to Roland Joffe. <laughs> he made good movies in the 80s. Um, and then uh, Rain Man, I think, is probably the most overrated best picture of the 1980s. But, you know, it has I mean, they, they, they all kind of were overrated, weren't they? Uh, some of them. Maybe most of them. Other, other than Terms of Endearment, apparently. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I mean go like, Gandhi, Gandhi is awful, right? I mean, like, Out of Africa is definitely overrated. Last Emperor, is, nobody remembers that movie. Driving Miss Daisy was never good. I mean, like, I mean, no, what, good, what, 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 were there good ones ever? <laughs> Terms of Endearment, Platoon. Uh, okay, Platoon. Oh, yeah, Platoon, Amadeus obviously. is pretty good. I, I, I mean, I sort of like I ordinary people. Yeah, I sort of like ordinary people too. It was a bad time for films, you know. Even Tarantino talks about, you know, directors like Frankenheimer and they were making. But he also talks movies. about how awesome, like the, uh, like the the movies that nobody saw, no one saw, were in that in that decade. Like he That's talks true. about how like all those like Kung Fu Master. Sure, <laughs> he talks about how like all the all the all the all the really like like juvenile comedies that came out and that like he he has like. Like they they quote them all the time on their sets and stuff. Like, like he, he's he's like there were some really good movies that came out there, just nobody ever remembers them because like the rest of the decade was awful. Well, that's I mean he's probably talking about uh, overall les enfants, which he couldn't pronounce. Um, okay, so uh, I'm gonna go numbers seven through five on my list. Number seven on my list is A World Apart, directed by Chris Menges, or Menges, which tells the story of a 13-year-old girl growing up in apartheid South Africa in the 1960s, and her parents, particularly her mother, played by Barbara Hershey, is a uh, voracious anti-apartheid activist, and so it's kind of like growing up in this strong activist uh, setting. I uh, haven't seen it for a while, but I remember really liking it when I first saw it. 
Uh, number six is a film that's been unfairly destroyed by bad uh, releases, and it's been cut up by the studio, but that is Giuseppe Tornatore's Cinema Paradiso, which uh, in the original, like, two-and-a-half-hour two cut is a masterpiece. Uh, it's been subsequently chopped down, but uh, incredible story about uh, a child who grows up to be a, a famous film director recounting his life uh, watching movies in his small village in Italy. Um, if you don't cry in the last five minutes of Cinema Paradiso, you're not human. And then uh, number five on my list is The Thin Blue Line, the groundbreaking, uh, trailblazing documentary by Errol Morris. It put Errol Morris's name on the map, so to speak. Uh, looks at uh, this uh, uh, guy who was pulled over by the Dallas police and basically accused of this murder that he did not commit. And uh, the film was about his wrongful conviction and ultimately led to the overturning of his sentence. And uh, it's told in a really unique way with a lot of reenactments and a haunting score by uh, Philip Glass. So uh, very much worth watching if you're a documentary fan. Uh, decent choices. I'm not actually a big fan of, of World Apart. I watched that once, and I, I normally love everything Barbara Hershey's in, but it actually ranks as my number 27 of 1988. I... Actually, Ouch. kind of fell asleep during it. Uh, <laughs> uh, Cinema Paradiso is my number four of 1990. So that, uh, and you're right, like it, it really, yeah. The the ending is MDB super has emotional. It, as 88. it didn't get released in the U.S. until 90. That's why I went with that. But I mean, it is a really is a really really good movie, and uh, I, I honestly had it at like borderline number one of that year uh, until I realized that. Uh, 1990, and then it had it at number four. And uh, it's one of those movies that has never had a good American uh, DVD release. Like I'm I don't not even, I'm not even sure it's actually been on just like TCM or something. Uh, but my number, your your uh, Thin Blue Line is actually my number four. My number three is uh, Eight Men Out, best baseball that's ever been made. Uh, is brushed over by like the people who don't want this fall but it's a it's a great movie great performances and made by probably the best director that will ever direct a baseball movie and uh my number two is uh decalogue which uh zach finally got me to watch uh maybe a year or two ago and that is uh the 10 part uh former miniseries turned movie by Kristoff uh, Kieslowski. Uh, some parts are really, really good, like all decade worthy. Some parts are pretty good, but overall, it is everything is just way above, above. And uh, I, I, and we actually really differ on the ones that we really like the most, which makes it even that much more interesting. Decalogue is something else and something to behold, and that's my number two of 1988. So uh, I didn't know you were so fond of the Thin Blue Line. Uh, it's awesome to hear. It's a great movie. Um, I think it's aged really well, too, and it's quite unlike any other documentary that's ever been made. Um, and I also agree with you about Eight Men Out, which I think is the best uh, baseball movie of that era. I think it's better than the natural, certainly better than Natural and Bull Durham. I think it's because it takes its subject a lot more seriously than those other films. It's a lot more of a sobering look, and uh, that's because... Uh, uh, who's John the guy Sales. that did it? Um, John, John Sales is a genius. Love all of his films. And uh, as for the Decalogue, well, you might see that also on my list. Uh, but uh, I don't know. We'll have to see. 
Um, number four on my list is uh, an- yet another film from 1988 that hasn't been remembered really at all. I don't even know if it's available to rent on DVD. I've never really seen a copy of it, but that is Madame Susatska by the great director, British director John Schlesinger. You may remember him from Midnight Cowboy. And it's a film with Shirley MacLaine. She plays the eccentric titular character, Madame Susatska, who's a old lady who uh, is also a piano instructor. And uh, as you watch the film, she her, her student is uh, named Manek, and he's played by Naveen Chowdhury. And uh, he's this young Indian boy who's a prodigy at piano, and she lives in this flat with a lot of interesting room, uh, uh, neighbors, including Twiggy and Peggy Ashcroft. And uh, it's a really good movie about the teacher-student relationship and eccentric old ladies, which no one was better than pl- better at playing in the 1980s than uh, Shirley MacLaine. Number three on my list is uh, A Fish Called Wanda, the funniest movie of the 1980s, um, in, directed by Charles Crichton of uh, the great Ealing studio, British comedies of the 40s and 50s, John Cleese, Jamie Lee Curtis, uh, Michael Palin, and the, probably the funniest Oscar-winning performance of all time, uh, Kevin Klein as Otto. I, I can't think of another Oscar-winning performance that was that purely comic, so it was a great move by the Oscars giving it to him that year. Gosh, memorable scene after memorable scene. It's when comedies really had an edge and a bite to them. It's a movie that is fearless. You know, we talked a little bit about having an edge with Game Night, but this movie uh, puts Game Night to shame. Just absolutely hilarious in every scene. And then my number two of 1988 is a, a French film called Chocolat, not the film with Juliette Binoche, but uh, the film directed by Claire Denis, and it tells the story of a white family that's living in Africa, West Africa and Cameroon, and uh, it's a very kind of subtle story about this erotic tension between the mom in the house, uh, or the wife, I could say, and the black servant named Prote. And uh, they never really consummate the relationship because it would obviously break too many taboos, but there's an erotic, erotically charged component to it. It's a little comparable in some respects to Far From Heaven, um, but it's also very much about this repression of that society, the repression racism of French uh, colonialist society at the time. Absolutely brilliant film, and Claire Denis is a great director, and uh, that film is haunting and memorable and beautiful. They don't make movies like they like uh, like that anymore. Yeah, I've never seen uh, Chocolat or uh, the first one, but uh, Madame Sussat. Yes, but uh, A Fish Called Wanda is definitely a, a great movie. I have it number twelve, no, fourteen. So it's, yeah, just missed my honorable mentions. Oh, I was hoping it was going to be your number one. No, I I do I I do like the movie a lot. I I've seen it once, but I I I kind of take I I mean, wasn't Alan Arkin just as uh, purely comic of an Oscar-winning performance as that? I mean, it's got a. Um, he had some scenes that were like heartfelt with Abigail Breslin. There's nothing heartfelt about the Kevin Klein character. I mean, he gets rolled over. You know, at the True. airport. I mean, his body is flat on the tarmac. I mean, I don't know, how he's much sort more of the, like one of the leads too. I feel like I don't know. I I don't know if he actually should have won Best Supporting Actor. But it is a really funny movie. It's it's, it's fair, one of the the best person. movies by by that group of filmmakers for sure. And uh, and then definitely a good choice for this list. Uh, moving on to my number one, which. Uh, was famously named number one of the 1990s by Martin Scorsese, and that is The Horse Thief by Zhuang Zhuang Tian. Uh, is the story of Norbu, who is a horse thief, and he's uh, k- 
kicked out of his tribe uh, because uh, they want to like rid it of evil, but he uh, tries to repent, but he has a, the birth of his son, so he's trying to, uh, so he has to go back to his stealing ways, and it's just like a really beautiful, re really interesting movie, and uh, as it goes along, it, it just is like this like painful look at this at this uh at this like singular lifestyle and it's 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 different than any movie I've ever thought about or seen and it's just it's something really really special and uh not a whole lot of people have seen it if I look I'm looking at IMDb and there is actually 780 votes so that definitely needs to go up because there is <laughs> like it is a, a beautiful movie and it is not a 1990s movie it was actually released in January 1988 so that is my number one of 1988, The Horse Thief by Zhuang Zhuang Tian. And you wouldn't have seen that were, to, were it not for uh, Marty telling you about it. Exactly. And I actually saw it on, uh, I think it was on YouTube, actually. So, And it's available for anyone to watch if they want to. Okay, I've definitely not seen that. Um, had you won How the... How have you not seen that? You, you know even about that, that top ten of the 90s list thing. I, I, yeah, I just completely forgot about it. Uh... And it is under three hours, uh, quite a bit under three hours, so maybe I'd love to check it out at some point. Um, hey, whatever Marty says goes, right? Oh, well, uh, obviously. Um, my number one of 88, and probably my number one of the 1980s, is uh, already mentioned by Todd on his list at number two. Uh, my number one is uh, Decalogue by Krzysztof Kieslowski. I don't know, Todd, which are your favorite films? I, I, I don't feel like we were that different. I feel like the ones that I said were the ones that you said that you have only seen like once. I, I feel like I, m I might have said, I don't remember them exactly in number, but I think there were like uh, eight and four. Four is about the, the father and daughter who might not be yeah. related. Yeah, that's a really good one. I, I wouldn't disagree. That's like my number four, I think. I feel like you you said you you only seen the last few like once and I I remember I said like one of those was my absolute favorite one I I can't remember which yeah, one it was I don't I don't love nine through ten They're, those aren't my favorites but uh well but you know that's what's great about the film is that uh you know they're all fifty four minutes long and they're all dramatically different they all have different cinematographers and different visual style I mean you look at like five which is which was later turned into a short film about killing looks completely different looks like a silent film you know it doesn't look like anything uh that was made in the sound era or the color era but then it's completely distinct from six which has a really strong unique uh, color palette to it um and the stories the way they intersect is really unique and fascinating um, these characters all kind of live at the same apartment complex, uh, and we see one recurring character in each film that may represent the devil, we're not really sure. Uh, they're religious, but not, but, uh, only if you think about the symbolism of the title of the Decalogue, and they're absolutely brilliant. Uh, it's, it's a phenomenal, uh, series. I definitely agree, it was my number two, and, uh, yeah, I, it was definitely eight that was my favorite one about the, uh, the, 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 the concentration the researcher survive. and the lecturer yeah and it's interesting too have you seen uh, the feature length versions of episodes 5 and 6 a short film about killing and a short film about love which he turned into two, uh, 90 minute films 
I have not seen those. Those are both really interesting. Those are th- those are my number two and three favorite. My favorite Decalogue episode is the first one, which I think uh, is some of the most extraordinary 54 minutes I've ever seen in any movie. So uh, worth checking out for sure. And kudos to Criterion for putting out an awesome Blu-ray uh, of it. They need to put out Cinema Paradiso and apparently now The Horse Thief. Yeah, they, they need to actually release it on video in some form. <laughs> Maybe it says something, though, that uh, all so many of these films on our lists are not American films. I mean, maybe there is something to the idea that uh, in the 80s, uh, American movies sucked. I don't know. That's definitely true. At least not the mainstream movies. Absolutely. Well, I think we, we can agree that Terry's number one is probably Die Hard, right? Uh, I don't know. It's probably Rain Man. Hmm. We'll have to ask him he's ever on this podcast again we can probably look it up on our website we probably almost sideways.com hey where everything's back to 1979 our top tens that's a really really good segue and and, uh good good shout out there too hey while we're at it let's shout out to the red and brown podcast i mean those guys are doing a great job out there uh adam and uh ben uh we'll have to ask them what their movies of 1988 are oh adam's has to be roger rabbit right uh, Adams uh, got Rain Man, Die Hard, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Eight Men Out, Beetlejuice. Those are his top five. And Terry's got Rain Man, Big, Die Hard, A Fish Called Wanda, and Working Girl. And see, aren't you glad, listeners, that you were listening to me and Todd talk instead of hearing repetitive banter <laughs> about those films? Man, I hate Beetlejuice. I think that film has aged horribly and is really unfunny. But whatever. I think it's my worst of '88. Wow, that's that's saying something. My my bottom of it in 1988 is uh, coming to America. Ooh, uh, just below the purple people eater, and and cocktail. Why so, do you hate coming to America so much? There's a big following for that film. I I I found it pretty much unwatchable. I I don't honestly don't understand how anyone could sit through that movie. <laughs> Nice. I give it a half a star. Do you like that movie? Uh, never seen it. Oh. I'm being honest. Well, there we go. Maybe that'll be my next movie for you to watch. Beetlejuice is at the bottom of my 88 list, but the second worst film is uh, the TV movie A Very Brady Christmas, which my family watched a lot during Christmas time. But in a way, I would almost maybe want to put it in my top list of 88 because it has some incredible dialogue in it. Just, Speaking of Christmas, my my fifth worst movie is Ernest Saves Christmas. So, ooh, yeah, you know, I have a lot of sequels down there. I have Rambo three, uh, Police Academy five, as was mentioned earlier on the podcast. Wow, that's amazing! <laughs> Two shoutouts to Police Academy five, Big Top Pee Wee and Crocodile Dundee too. So that that is that is the bottom of my list. Like a bunch of sequels and uh, Coming to America and Purple People Eater. Wow. I think we need to get out of 1988 before... Uh... <laughs> this is a terrible year. I don't know why you were talking about that year. <laughs> it's 30 years, man. 30 years of coming to America. <laughs> there are people who like that movie. I think. I don't okay. know any of them. Yeah, well, me neither. Uh, let's uh, go to uh, quote of the day. Uh, why don't you go, Todd, for your quote of the day? All right, mine comes from Kenny Powers, which was uh, obviously Danny McBride in Eastbound and Down. And uh, he's filled with uh, very memorable uh, uh, quotes and uh, things that you can remember. <laughs> and he, he says, 
I've been blessed with many things in my in this life. An arm like a damn rocket, a cock like a Burmese python, and a mind of a f***ing scientist. So people often ask me, Kenny, what are your weaknesses? Do you have any? I would say my biggest flaw, my Achilles heel, is I, my tireless worth ec worth ec work ethic. <laughs> well, I had, I had an issue with uh, my favorite quote. I decided to uh, uh, go with uh, Meryl Hess from uh, the memorable 2002 movie by M. Night Shyamalan, Ding Dong signs. One time I was at this party and I was sitting on the couch with Amanda McKinney. She was just sitting there looking beautiful. So I lean in to kiss her and I realize I have gum in my mouth. So I turn to spit it out and put it in a paper cup. I turn back and Amanda McKinney throws up all over herself. I knew the moment it happened it was a miracle. I could have been kissing her when she threw up and it would have scarred me from life. I may have never recovered. Awesome. A terrible movie. Uh, I love that movie when I first saw it. I gave it four stars. I, I, I don't know what I think of it watching the end today, though. And that is uh, an awesome episode of uh, the Almost Sideways podcast. We made it through Todd. No casualties. Somehow. Yeah, amazing. Uh, so listen to us on iTunes and Stitcher and Tumblr and MyFace and all that stuff. And uh, when we come back, uh, Terry will be back, probably, and we will ask him about his trip. And uh, we will find out uh, what movie him or Todd had to watch, because I won. So, uh, yeah. Take care. Peace.